welcome to Give Theory a Chance. In this episode, Dr. Kelly Underman, Associate Professor in Sociology at Drexel University in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and author of Feeling Medicine, How the Pelvic Exam Shapes Medical Training, joins us to read from the first chapter of Lauren Berlant's 2011 book, Cruel Optimism. As always, a PDF of the chapter is shared, so feel free to go to the show notes, click on the link, and then you can follow along. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Thank you again for joining us today, Kelly. I appreciate you sticking around and recording the companion episode, although we don't really have an order that it's released, so they're both, I don't know which is a companion and which is the original, but thank you either way for for sticking around. Yeah, I'm very happy. All right, so this is the exciting part. Um, I don't know if I should say this, but of the two types of podcasts I record, this is the one I actually get more excited about. It's a chance to be a student again. It's a chance to read things that I don't really have the push to read otherwise. This in particular, getting into Lauren Berlant's work is one of those things I've been planning to do for years, but I haven't. And I know we kind of answered this in the first podcast, but again, I'll just have you give a little bit of a short justification. Why Lauren Berlant? Why is that the person you chose to talk about today? So I am primarily a sociologist of medicine and medical education. And one of the things that I do is is engage with affect theory. And I'm really trying to bring affect theory into sociology. Um, And Lauren Berlant is one of the leading thinkers in the field of affect theory. And, you know, I run a reading group on affect theory and all of these kinds of things. And Berlant is just a big cornerstone of that. But I don't really often see their work in sociology Um, But I see a ton of resonances with what they're writing about and thinking about with problems in sociology. Because Berlant is really theorizing very persuasively the intersection of emotions or affects, neoliberalism, politics. And again, I think just really, as I said in the companion piece, right, really names a set of experiences, a set of feelings or vibes, (laughs) if I can. Um, But right, like, that is right now, right, this moment that we're living in. there was a really great New Yorker article, so maybe a good starting place for folks who want to engage with Berlant's work but have absolutely no sort of familiarity with cultural theory or this sort of strand is there was a 2019 New Yorker article on sort of affect theory and the new age of anxiety, which is all about sort of the cultural impact of Berlant's work and how Berlant is really trying to you know grapple with just the nuances of everyday life, the anxieties and the uncertainties and the precarities of neoliberalism and sort of how political sort of machines and political actors are attempting to sort of modulate these in ways to keep people attached to ideas that are actually harmful to them. You know, and I think Berlant is just really naming this idea that neoliberalism is exhausting to us, right? Crisis is this sort of ongoing, ordinary experience that we have that affect theory is giving a name to. For today's episode, you chose to discuss the first chapter of Cruel Optimism. And again, as always, I share a PDF of the reading. So if anyone listening, feel free to download that so you can follow along. But I'm curious why this particular book, Cruel Optimism, and why this particular chapter, the first chapter? Sure. So um, first off, the book Cruel Optimism is sort of Berlant's key text. The other key text that Berlant um, writes with Kathleen Stewart is called The Hundreds, which is a very sort of experimental piece. But I chose this book and I chose this chapter in particular because I think it's where Berlant is most clearly naming what cruel optimism is and the sort of 
mode of investigating cruel optimism, which is sort of scenes of suspension or rupture that occur. Uh, so I just picked this chapter because I think it lays out a lot of the major tenets of what uh, um, cruel optimism is and how, how we understand it in the world. I'm curious, what courses would you consider using cruel optimism for? And so yeah. at SUNY Brockport, we don't have a separate classic and contemporary theory course. We just have one. And I used to teach it where it really was leaning into more of the classic theory. I don't know why, other than this kind of disciplinary, invisible disciplinary pressure that hangs over us. But more and more, I'm shifting towards assigning works, more contemporary works that I think will simply resonate with students and excite them and help them understand the experiences they're having. And I could see using this for that reason, especially when pairing this with someone like Sarah Ahmed. Um, But is that where you would use it in theory, or are there other courses that you would also imagine? I could definitely, so I definitely would, could teach this in theory, and I've thought about trying to interweave it into my contemporary. So I teach classical and contemporary theory on a quarter system, so I'm not sure that that's necessarily giving a lot more time for including everybody, but there is a like, you know, and then there's the question of what's classical versus contemporary when you have 10 weeks to yeah. do it. But I, you know, I teach Ahmed at the end of my contemporary. I have thought about how I could engage with, with Berlant. And sort of textually, referentially, I most recently dropped uh, from my syllabus because my students were exhausted. And I was like, mm, this might be yeah. a little too much. So I think the New Yorker article might be a good sort of intro for students. And I should say, right, like I think affect theory is really dense and, and challenging for undergrads. But I've, I've been pretty successful talking about my book, for example, with, with undergrads and sort of, you know, because once you sort of explain it in a way that is approachable, I think people are like, oh, yeah, yeah, that definitely names a thing. So I, I could see it in a theory class. I definitely think courses on, on social movements, perhaps, because it is about sort of politics and, and sort of what is the role of hope for the future, a different kind of future, um, sociology of emotion or affect, right, is an obvious class that I would do. Anything sort of on the history of capitalism, you know, or a course on sort of neoliberalism and citizenship, I think that this could work very well in. All right. Let's get to the part that I'm probably most excited about. So let us know where we're going to begin. And then if you're willing, can you read us some of the key passages? We'll follow along and then we can try to make sense of it together. Or really, you'll help me and the listeners make sense of it. So let's get started with the very first paragraph of the chapter, which is I'm looking at page 23. And so this is where Berlant is naming, sort of defining what cruel optimism is, right? Berlant writes, all attachments are optimistic. When we talk about an object of desire, we are really talking about a cluster of promises we want someone or something to make to us and make possible for us. This cluster of promises could be seen embedded in a thing, a person, a thing, an institution, a text, a norm, a bunch of cells, smells, a good idea, whatever. To phrase the object of desire as a cluster of promises is to allow us to encounter what's incoherent or enigmatic about our, all of our attachments, not as configurations of our irrationality, but as an explanation of our sense of our endurance in the object, insofar as proximity to the object means proximity to the cluster of things that the object promises, some of which may be clear to us and good for us, while others not so much. Thus, all attachments do not feel optimistic. One might dread, for example, returning to a scene of hunger or longing or the slapstick reiteration of a lover's or parent's predictable distortions. But being drawn to the return of the scene where the object hovers in its potentialities is the operation of optimism as an affective form. In optimism, the subject leans towards promises contained within the present moment of the encounter with her object. When I, again, yesterday was the first time I've read this, I 
really love this paragraph, but I also felt like there was a ton in there. Yeah. <laughs> so where do you think is the important place to start to understanding what's actually going on? So I think there's a couple of things that are really important about this passage, right? There's first and foremost, this idea of attachment, which this is where affect is different than emotion theoretically, and I think does different work as a concept. Um, and in particular, this strand of affect theory is so useful and, and sort of different than a sort of idea of emotions as intersubjective properties that's familiar to sociology, because affect is really this sort of relational engagement between individuals, between people, and between ideas, institutions, right, texts, norms, a good idea, whatever, as Berlant says, right? So it's really, affect is helping us understand the sort of relationality and the, the you know, shape of the mode of attachment, basically. So I think that's the first and foremost thing that's really important here. And it's interesting. They're listing things that seem to operate at such different scales or have such different yeah. power within society, listing an institution right next to a person or a norm or a smell. Those, those seems like a list that <laughs> you're like, what are the, what is this doing to have yeah. things? But all of them are things that you can form attachment or have to see as an object of desire. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's Point, yeah. Yeah, and I really like the way that they're phrasing it as a cluster of promises. So each of these things, the attachment is based on what those things are potentially offering, right? That is that that's a key part here. Yeah, yeah, and we desire to be close to these whatever the object of desire, right? Is because we desire to possess whatever the promise that is being made there. That's sort of a you know when we think about like projection and psychoanalytic theory, right? It's about like I'm displacing feelings that I have into a different object, this is sort of the reverse, right? I am attempting to take into myself the things that I want out of this this desired object. I don't know if this is a question that makes sense. And I guess that's the joy of being the student. You can tell me if it doesn't. <laughs> um, is this theory always about kind of the danger of the future? Of Because the promises are always about what will come. And so it's always pushing for people to prioritize the potential mm -hmm. rather than what is. Does that make sense? Yes, yes. And I think that's exactly the point that Berlant makes elsewhere in the text, right, is that we're displacing the, the precarity of the now. I forget the exact language that they use, right, but we're sort of like, and this is how hope operates. And there's been a lot of really interesting sociological work on anticipation and hope, for example, right? Like, I'm going to ignore how horrible the conditions of right now are in favor of imagining a different future for myself. Um, I think that's part of what is cruel about the optimism is, right? Like, I'm going to hope things are different without the conditions of the present changing so that things can actually be different. And that's why it's about the cluster of promises, right? not yeah. the cluster of feelings that it's actually given, but the cluster yeah. of feelings about the future that could be. Okay. All right. So what else is key from this paragraph? The idea that things don't necessarily have to feel optimistic. They don't have to feel good for us to be scenes of cruel optimism, right? Like there can be moments where things feel terrible, but we're still attached to them because of the hope of what these objects can give us. Okay. And that's the part where those attachments do not all feel optimistic. One might dread, for example, and then list things like the the slapstick reiteration of the lover or parents' predictable distortions, right? These These things that... So you're holding on to them because they're still, they're still, even in the moment, if they're not providing something, it's still that future promise that you attach to it. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's sort of, so elsewhere, right down, right, the, the present moment of the encounter, right? So the other thing that's really, I think, important about understanding cruel optimism and this sort of strand of affect theory, and I think the sort of 
move that's that's happening in sort of cultural studies too is the shift away from like the event as this thing that feels eventful and feels big and feels like a moment of rupture to this Berlant calls it crisis ordinariness right this idea that like everyday ongoing crisis is the condition of our lives and so we really have to understand the present moment as it exists as opposed to the hope for the future or the sort of idea that like this rupture happens and that was the past and then the future. Should we head to the next paragraph? Absolutely. So this is the second paragraph down from this, which is on page 24. So Berlant writes, in the introduction, I described cruel optimism as a relation of attachment to compromised conditions of possibility whose realization is discovered to be to either be impossible, sheer fantasy, or too possible and toxic. Uh, what's cruel about these attachments and not merely inconvenient or tragic is that the subjects who have X in their lives might not well endure the loss of their object or scene of desire, even though its presence threatens their very well-being, because whatever the content of the attachment is, the continuity of its form provides something of the continuity of the subject's sense of what it means to keep on, keep on living on and to look forward to being in the world. I'm going to skip a sentence down to, cruel optimism is the condition of maintaining an attachment to a significantly problematic object. I can see how it's clearly building on the paragraph before what are the key things that are being added in this paragraph? And then I have a question or two to follow sure. up with. <laughs> so I think that's sort of what Berlan is adding in this paragraph is sort of why people uh, maintain cruel optimism, which is this idea that like investing in this idea, institution, smell, right, whatever the object of desire is, allows the subject to have some sense of continuity, right? So if I believe that the American dream is real, that I can live a good life in these ways, then everything that I have attached myself to in pursuit of this goal can continue on. And this is in spite of the fact that, you know, for, for a lot of people, the loss of this object of desire either feels like it means the end of the world or actually is the end of the world in a lot of ways, or, or you know, a threat to life itself, as Berlant says elsewhere. So that's the sort of thing that this is adding, right, is people are invested in this because it's about continuity of themselves and their sense of who they are and where they belong in the world. And then I have a question about the very, the very first sentence. And yes. maybe this is getting too caught up in a detail, but I'm wondering, so they say, as a relation of attachment to compromised conditions of possibility, whose realization is discovered either to be impossible, that one makes sense to me, sheer fantasy, and then, or too possible and toxic. What does it mean to be too possible? I was trying to figure out why that was included in the list, because the other ones make logical sense to me, right? Attachment yeah. to this thing that you can't actually ever attain. It's just some sort of sheer fantasy. It's this this toxic thing that has a negative effect. But what does it mean to be too possible? I read this as being like, you know, you, you get the thing that you want. It actually is achievable and possible to you, but it's also then toxic to you. Oh, I, I, oh, I see. I see. Yeah. So I've, I've heard um, people talk about cruel optimism as being sort of like Berlant's understanding of academia. So like it's it, it, for a lot of folks, right, given the sort of precarity of higher ed and the erasure of tenure and the like drying up of tenure track lines, it's impossible to get one of those lines. But then for folks who do get it right, you get there and it's academia is a pie eating contest where the 
reward is more pi. Yeah, I see. Okay, that makes sense. And then is there anything else from this paragraph that we should we should stop and look at? I just love that this plays a significantly problematic object. I think that that's sort of the, you know, and, and Berlant says later in this paragraph that I didn't read, but like the individual can recognize that this is a significantly problematic object, but the role of the sort of like theorist or the analyst, or I would posit the sociologist is to sort of think about, is this a problematic, is this an inherently problematic object or not? And I actually think the sentence that you skipped is really interesting too, but there's, do you mind if I read it actually? Yeah, go for it. <laughs> so the part that you skipped is, this phrase points to a condition different from that of melancholia, which is enacted in the subject's desire to temporize an experience of loss of an object seen with which she has invested her ego continuity. I like the contrast between the melancholy is about a loss that you can't get over, so pointing to the past, and then cruel optimism is about a future that you can't let go of, right? So both are about not letting go, but one is about the past and one's about the future. Because I'm always interested in the time aspect of this argument. Yeah, yeah, and I definitely think about underscores, right? Temporality is such a big part of Berlant's theory, and that's exactly how I understand that, right? Melancholy is about something that's already lost. Yeah. Cruel optimism is about the future, but also things that are always in process of being either impossible or so threatening if they do end up being lost to us. And so and even if it's this negative, even if you can see the negative impact of it, it's the fear of that future loss. You still hold on to X, as, as they put it there. Yeah. Okay. And then I, I made the request of reading the next paragraph, not because I particularly understood it, but it seemed exciting when I was reading it. So the third paragraph of the introduction, can you take us there also? Yes. And this is still on page 24. Yeah, we're still on page 24, and I'm really excited actually that you asked me to read this. So this says, one might point out that all objects, scenes of desire are problematic in that investments in them and projections onto them are less about them than about what cluster of desires and affects we can manage to keep magnetized to them. I have indeed wondered whether all optimism is cruel because the experience of loss of the conditions of its reproduction can be so breathtakingly bad, just as the threat of the loss of X in the scope of one's attachment drives can feel like a threat to living on itself. But some scenes of optimism are clearly crueler than others. Where cruel optimism operates, the very vitalizing or animating potency of an object scene of desire contributes to the attrition of the very thriving that is supposed to be made possible in the work of attachment in the first place. This might point to something as banal as scouring love, but it also opens out to obsessive appetites, working for a living, patriotism, all kinds of things. One makes affective bargains about the costliness of one's attachments, usually unconscious ones, most of which keep one in proximity to the scene of desire or attrition. I'd love to know what you think is key in here and, and how we interpret this paragraph. And the reason I was drawn to it is, in a sense, they realize what the reader is going to be asking at this point of the introduction, because it does seem rather horrifying as you follow along and say, okay, so all these things that we attach to, all these things that we see as pointing to an, basically hope, right? Hope for the future. There is a danger in that. So then the question becomes, does that mean any type of object of desire, any type of attachment is necessarily going to be cruel? So where do they, t where do they take us in this paragraph? Sure. Yeah. So I think some of the really important background about the sort of like theory that's informing this is thinking about, for example, Marx and sort of fetishism, right? And, and sort of Freud and in fetishes as well. And in projection, right? Which is this, that we attribute to the object of our desire, the thing that we are fetishizing, 
the, the meaning that we are actually circulating, right? So money is a commodity, you know, commodity fetishism, right? Money, we think is a real thing and therefore we're attached to it. But the, the feelings that we put in the object don't actually come from the object. They come from the sort of circulation of stuff. I'm not sure if that made sense. I hope that yeah, made sense. Okay, cool. I think that reading Berlant, this is perhaps why it's difficult, I think, sometimes as a sociologist to come to Berlant because there's a lot of like psychoanalytic, and I'm not that conversed in psychoanalytic, psychoanalytic theory. There are people who are way smarter at this than me, but that's sort of my working understanding of it. Not part of our sociological training, at least in no. grad school, that wasn't something I encountered unless I went over to cultural studies or gender studies. Yeah, it doesn't. And I think like, you know, my particular theoretical training, I was exposed to a lot of these ideas because of who I was mentored by. Uh, but, uh, you know, I tried for a while, I was teaching Freud in my undergrad classical theory class, because I think Freud is very interesting, but I took him out because I just didn't have space. Yeah. But yeah, this idea of, right, like, what is production? What is fetishism? What is attachment? So I think that that's part of the unnecessary background, right? And so that sort of frames then Berlant's question of like, are all attachments, right? Are all forms of optimism cruel? And they're really stepping back and saying, Yes, all losses are threatening to one's sense of self, but not all attachments are cruel in the sense that, you know, that the, they're producing these sort of harms, right? So what makes something cruel optimism is that we are attached to things that contribute to the very to the attrition of the very thriving, right? So we attach cruel optimism exists when we attach to objects of desire like the good life, the American dream, academia, uh, that are promising us this like happiness and this fulfillment and all of these thriving, these good ways of being that we want um, and are actually undermining that for us in, in that sort of way. So I, li- I love that they say the, the, the forms of cruel optimism can be things like patriotism and working for a living. I'll come back to this question later, but I was reading this text. I oscillated between seeing their ideas as it's probably the wrong term to even use, but at points it seems kind of exciting and optimistic and inspiring, and other times it seems very depressing. Yeah. <laughs> and and I don't know if that's the, even the right question to ask. But then I also really quickly tried to track down some of their more popular writing because I I know I'd encountered some of their like yeah. writing for the nation or things like that. And in those essays, there seems to be again like hope isn't the right word because hope seems to be actually the exact thing they're writing against but there seems to be these moments of saying well there's here's these paths that we can take to actually find joy and find possibility yeah and I don't, and I, I, I was, when I was reading this, I was always going back and forth being like, where does this, where does this leave my own emotional state after encountering this text? Yeah, I think that's such a good point, right? And that really does lead to the political project that Vermont is building in this book and in differentiating that all forms of optimism aren't cruel. Like the, the, the problem that we need to interrogate are these forms of cruel optimism, like attaching to ideas, attaching to communities, attaching to one another is not necessarily cruel or harmful to us. In fact, I think that's where Berlant's politics lie, right? Like modes of attachment that actually do contribute to our flourishing are worth investing in, right? Because they say one makes affective bargains about the costliness of one's attachments. Usually this is an unconscious process, but, you know, part of the work of critical theory, right, is to bring up to our level of awareness, like how am I attaching and, and where could I be attaching that would produce better outcomes? All right, where do we go from here? Let's jump over to page 27 at the bottom onto page 28. Okay, perfect. And I'll point out, this is a question, another question that we'll return to, where you mapped out where we were going to jump to was very helpful in reading. And it often, I find that it skips either delving more into, uh, in this case, the kind of that psychoanalytic tradition, and then other times 
avoiding some really deep textual reading. Mm-hmm. Um, so later we'll come back and think about what it's like to actually engage with a text like this, especially if we're using it in the classroom. Sure. Um, but right. so let's let's jump to twenty seven. That's perfect. So it's a, the the final paragraph on twenty seven. That's what we're looking at. Yeah, final paragraph. So as an analytic lever, it is an incitement. This is cruel optimism to as a concept uh, to inhabit and to track the affective attachment to what we call the good life, which is for so many a bad life that wears out the subjects who nonetheless, and at the same time, find their conditions of possibility within it. This is not just a psychological state. The conditions of ordinary life in the contemporary world, even of relative wealth as in the United States, are conditions of the attrition or the wearing out of the subject. And the irony that the labor of reproducing life in the contemporary world is also the activity of being worn out by It has specific implications for thinking about the ordinariness of suffering, the violence of normativity, and the technologies of patience that enable a concept of the later to suspend questions about the cruelty of the now. So this is what you referenced earlier when I was asking you about the idea of the future. Yeah, help me understand this one, and then I have a few specific follow-ups, but this was the paragraph that I probably resonated with the most. Yeah, and I think that this paragraph really shows like all of the things that Berlant is trying to do with cruel optimism, right? It's about temporality. It's about the suspension of the cruelty of the now for the concept of the later, right? Like, let's think about futures as opposed to attending with what's happening directly in front of us. So that sort of temporality piece we see here. And I think we also see this like attachment. It's not about the individual subject, right? Cruel optimism isn't about an individual psychological state that each one of us possesses. It's about a sort of system of relations that we're all embedded in, especially in a place like the United States. So sorry to interrupt, but is, that's the that was actually one of the questions I was going to ask. I think you just answered it. Because again, this is one of those things that I struggle with both as a reader, but also at, in the classroom, trying to explain why it's this idea of affect is so important, but also different than just talking about emotions. And even people write within affect often slip between these two. Um, but here, it seems really key that they're saying is incitement to inhabit and to track the effective attachment to what we call the good life. So how would that be different than if they said to track the emotional attachments that we just have to the good life? And I, I think you were just answering that, but I, w- I wanted to just make sure I understood that. Oh, I love that question. Yeah, I get this a lot with my own work is like, why do I say affect as opposed to emotion? Aren't I really talking about emotion? And I, you know, in some ways I do talk about emotion and and I follow and I think Berlant probably is also because they engage with Masumi's work where Masumi talks about uh, an emotion is a recognized affect, right? Um, Yeah. In affect theory, and especially in that trend, right, like, or in that sort of strand, emotion becomes sort of, affect gets distorted when it gets brought up to the level of language. So being able to talk about affect in in language makes it emotion, which makes them different. So, which is a really complicated hair splitting distinction that, you know, somebody like Sarah Ahmed doesn't, doesn't necessarily agree with. But I think that the, the, the idea of affect here and the idea of affective attachments, right, is it's saying that this is a, this is a, Ben Anderson talks about affective atmospheres, right, especially of neoliberalism, right? We are embedded in this, if people, the New Yorker or the New York Times has written about the like vibe shift, right? Like we're embedded in this, this set of social relations that also produces a type of feeling that is sort of below our level of awareness at all times. And I think emotion is more about the sort of like what we actually are aware of and can name. And affect is about the sort of feelings that we get at the level of the body or the sort of bodily register that are sort of 
you know, circulating the mood in a room, the mood in the country at a particular time. That makes sense. So emotion also seems to limit it more to the individual or personal experience and affect can get at something not deeper, but just more abstract that's floating around. Yeah, free floating. It doesn't, you know, emotions can reside in individuals, whereas an affects can sort of reside, but they never originate from particular individuals. Affects are just sort of out there in the ether and they shape us, they shape our engagement with things, but we don't possess an affect necessarily. Okay. So is there, is there something else from this section that we should we should take away. I mean, I, I did find the sentence really compelling, especially where they're saying towards the end of the section that you read, thinking about the ordinariness of suffering, the violence of normativity yeah. and the technologies of patience that enable a concept of later to suspend questions about the cruelty of now. That's one of those sentences that you could just take and cut and you don't need to even see the rest of the chapter yeah. or even know about the book. And you're like, okay, I, I get what that's doing. Yeah. And I think that this is, I would say that this, the, the violence of normativity, the ordinariness of suffering, this is really what Berlant and other affect theorists in this, this tradition are trying to do that. I think I mentioned before and also mentioned in the, the companion piece, you know, we're, we're not talking about these major historical ruptures anymore where like we can distinctly say here was a thing and this, this happened. And certainly COVID in a lot of ways is a major historical rupture and we'll look back on and be able to analyze in that way. But the, the feeling of living through it was just this sort of like ordinariness of suffering, the, the violence of normativity, the technologies of patience, right? Just like the day-to-day -day living through crisis after crisis after crisis that neoliberalism engenders, it points to this temporality stuff that, that Berlant is trying to, or the, the scale of suffering and violence. And this is where I think it's so important, right? Because it gives us a language to name this that I think previous theoretical tools didn't necessarily give us. This is not rupture. This is not revolution. This is the everyday plodding along in these conditions that are making us miserable that Berlant later calls slow death. Another another really uh, happy term. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so again, this is a very specific question, but what is the what is technologies doing in the sentence? So they specifically say the technologies of patients would you do you read that as just referring to a certain theoretical lineage or, or what do you what do you make of that term? And they even put it in quotations. Is that taken from somewhere? You know, I'm not 100 percent sure. I was looking at the footnote and trying to, to um, determine whether that technologies phrase comes from anyone specific. I think it refers to Berlant's previous. The footnote refers to Berlant's previous work, which I. Oh, OK, that makes sense. Did not look at before I did this interview, unfortunately. But I think that the idea that in technologies in the Foucauldian sense is how I would read that. OK. And so from that perspective, technologies of patients, it, I'm just trying, I'm just thinking like technologies, it seems almost more almost strategic in a sense, this thing mm -hmm. that this, uh, this like type, these types of discourses that are, are passed down as something that we should embrace. You're using the example of COVID just, yeah. just waiting. I don't know. It, it, it seemed the, the terminology seems significant there, but I also wasn't sure exactly what to do with it. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think that the idea that the, the technologies are deliberate is an intentional choice on Berlant's work because elsewhere in the, in the book, they talk about sort of like the ways that systems of power, powerful actors can, can shape our affective engagement or attachment in particular ways. So Reaganomics, neoliberalism is all about sort of manipulating um, people's engagement with the idea of what the good life is in particular ways. Yeah, that's a much more articulate way to say what I was trying to get at. Yeah. <laughs> so that, that works really well. Thank you.
<laughs> okay, where should where should we head after this? Let's jump to the end of the chapter. So I'm going to skip the text, textual analysis stuff, but we can come back to that as we. Okay, perfect. And I'm going to ask us to go. So this is on page 49. It's the like last couple of sentences of the chapter. Okay, so the very conclusion of the chapter. The very conclusion. I'm ready. Take us there. So by staging the impasse in which breakdown does its work on suspending the rules and norms of the world, these works show us how to pay attention to the built and affective infrastructure of the ordinary and how to encounter what happens when infrastructural stress produces a dramatic tableau. In scenarios of cruel optimism, we are forced to suspend ordinary notions of repair and flourishing to ask whether the survival scenarios we attach to those affects weren't the problem in the first place. Knowing how to assess what's unraveling there is one way to measure the impasse of living in the overwhelmingly present moment. This was another one. I mean, you, you did a really good job of choosing the paragraphs that I connected with. But I have to say, this was also the one where I, I found myself rereading the sentences the most to try to figure out what was going on. Because I mean, it was bringing together... 40 pages of ideas. What do you think is key from these sentences? So I think what's key here is Berlant is both sort of like laying out their method for interrogating cruel optimism and also sort of, again, gesturing towards a politics, right? A, a way, what we can use this to, how we can use these ideas to sort of think politically about the world that we inhabit currently. And so first and foremost, right, so by staging the impasse in which the breakdown does its work, right, this is what Berlant's textual analysis method is, which is looking at these moments, these seams of, of sort of rupture is a strong word, but sort of impasse of suspension, where the sort of contradiction between the thing that is hoped for and the thing that is actually happening, right, the like good life and the wearing down of the subject are made most visible. So their sort of textual analysis, again, is about these moments of suspension where you're sort of like, wait a second, this, these two things aren't totally lining up. And that, that that points us to pay attention to the built and effective infrastructure of the ordinary, right? So like, what can we understand about the sort of durability of, of norms, of values, based on the sort of way that the, the now, the, the present moment is shaped, um, which again gets to that, that temporality piece. I'm curious about the very final sentence. That's one that I read a few times trying to figure out exactly what was going on. So knowing how to assess what's unraveling there is one way. So that part makes sense. That goes to what you were just saying. And then to measure the impasse of living in the overwhelmingly present moment. Those final three words, I think they yeah. surprised me a little bit. The overwhelmingly present moment. Yeah. How do you read that? So I think I love this phrase, and I think that it has a lot to do with sort of the lineage of both what affect theory... So so this book was published in 2011, so I think that this is engaging with both sort of what affect theory was doing up until this point and what affect theory has done since that point, right? Which is this idea that the, the sort of register of our lives is very, very present, and it's about the sort of very intense moment, right? A lot of work on affect theory is thinking about sort of the production of I would say intensity in the present moment, right? And if you think about what it means to be alive right now, we're constantly on email, we're constantly on social media, we're constantly like here and here and there. So it's, you know, Berlant uses the phrase imminence a lot to talk about cruel optimism, right? So what is what is here very presently and how is this very intensely expressed? It's overwhelmingly present right now in the here. I think that makes sense. And that's sort of their method. What, what's the intensity of the experience right here in this exact present moment? Not what is past and lost in the melancholic sense, not what is coming forward in the sort of hope sense but like here right now. So pay attention to that sensory overload, all those various effective connections that are being forced upon us that we're accepting by looking at the future. Stop holding on yes. to those future promises and pay. And we have to assess what's 
actually occurring to us. Yes, exactly. It's kind of like the pop psychology of living the now, except from a very different, yeah. <laughs> the very different goal of living in the now. Critically live in the now. I think it's what we're yeah. say, right? Like live in the now, but be really critical about what the now is. Okay. So that's a really good way to travel through the chapter. I think we can see where the argument begins and then where they end, what they're asking us to actually do and where the rest of the book will take us. I'm assuming because I haven't read <laughs> I haven't read the rest of the book. But so my question for you, and and I think it's a difficult but important question, especially when I have the goal of, of bringing this to the classroom, is a significant portion of the chapter. Yeah. I mean, we, we read a few paragraphs of the 40 pages, but a lot of the other paragraphs are engaged in this, in literary examples, a steeper textual analysis. And you chose to avoid getting caught up in those sections for the sake of the podcast. But how do you handle this both as a reader trying to work through this and then also just in assigning this work? So it's not the type of stuff that students in sociology or anthropology or geography are really used to. Would you tell them to try to skim through it? I mean, how do we make sense of someone building theory in a way that's different than what we encounter in sociology? Yeah, I, love, I was really happy that you raised that question because I think it is so important with engaging with these texts. When I first came to cultural studies, in particular, the memory that stands out clearest to me was reading Jasper Poir's Terrorist Assemblages. That was probably my first encounter with this kind of yeah. cultural theorizing in this particular way. And as a sort of sociology grad student who was just first attempting to identify with the sort of like intense empirical nature of our work and trying to prove causality and all of these, you know, prove that structure is all of this kind of stuff, right? The, the very like empirical stuff. I was sort of like, how can you, you know, I was a little confused probably is, is the most charitable word I can say. Um, and I love that text and I engage with it all the time, but just trying to think about like, how do you read cultural products in these particular ways? So I think that the, the, the way that I've come to understand how First and foremost, the sort of theory building that uh, Berlant is doing can be read aside from their examples, but I think their examples illustrate for us a little bit more since it's so much about sensation and felt experience, the fact that they're drawing from, um, in particular, a, a John Ashbery poem and sort of highlighting this sort of like sensational, and by sensational, I mean sort of senses and the engagement with the senses that's happening in this poem. It's trying to, again, name the feeling, right? So so engaging with these literary works and doing this sort of literary analysis, one is sort of about like, what is the art making us feel and how does this relate to the theory that Berlin is doing? So I think that's one way to sort of talk about this. The other way is the method that Berlin is choosing about, you know, let's look for these these moments, these scenes where the promised thing and the outcome or the, the actual effects of the thing aren't quite lining up. Um, you know, you can see how they're doing this in this textual analysis, but you can also then step back and think about when I'm analyzing interviews, what is a novel but a narrative? What is a, a person's interview but a narrative? Where is the breakdown in this narrative that's being constructed and how can I, you know, understand that? So I think that's another way to think about their method is it's it's engaging with narrative. And it's, it's useful. I like the example you gave for people who choose to read this chapter, the John Ashbery poem, because it's provided in full for the reader. There's yeah. other times where I find it more difficult where it's a reference to a famous literary work or or even less famous literary works where it's there's a little bit more assumed of the reader going into it. And that's the part where I always find it a little bit daunting of saying, Well, I don't I don't know what's how this you just kind of 
place your faith in them, right? And try to follow along. Yeah, absolutely. I think that is one thing that I find very challenging, in particular about this text, because Vermont talks about films as well. Some novels that I've never read, and then also some films that I've never seen. And so, yeah, you do have to just sort of trust that they are sort of analyzing them in a way that makes sense. And I I struggle with that with Puar and Ahmed as well, right? Like, if I know the text, the film, the whatever, it, it helps, but Otherwise, you have to sort of follow along and and take them on faith a little bit. And I think those are partially just disciplinary norms that Mm -hmm. can be both overwhelming or daunting, but also liberating. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of times, I mean, thinking of assigning some of the work from Jay Halberstam and just all the cultural references that are, it's exciting when you see them, but sometimes like, I just don't, I don't know what the reference is. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's cultural references stuff is is really, really tricky. Because if you know the cultural reference, then you're like, oh, right. Like, I think about this in the classroom with, I spend way too much time on TikTok, but it's actually been really useful for me in my theory classes because I can say certain things and like it it evokes a sort of like, common sense vocabulary that we're all engaging with as as cultural producers and cultural consumers that helps people in particular ways. And even thinking about the circulation of uh, some of the ideas or the attachments that we have. I mean, I was just thinking about this perspective of cruel optimism. I don't know if you've seen this trend. I think it probably exists mostly on TikTok or Instagram or various social media sites, but there's a lot of younger men who are very much presenting this is the life that you should achieve. Look, I'm 20, I'm 23. I didn't go to college. Instead, I just, you know, I worked hard. I embraced the grind. And now I've got these three sports cars. And here's these beautiful women that I have in my sports car as I drive around. And as I was reading this idea of cruel optimism, I was thinking about, because I just, I taught a questioning masculinity course in the spring. So I was just finished grading final projects. But there's so much overlap with in a sense, these actors are creating these promises of what you should achieve by making sacrifices. So this is a tangential thought, but I'm just thinking about the value of, of, of being on TikTok and Instagram. Yeah, I know exactly the videos that you're talking about, right? And I think that would be, I would love to see somebody do sort of like a cruel optimism of the high value male um, analysis. Yeah, yeah. How this attachment to this idea then also producing harm for the people who are attached to it. Yeah. Do you have any final thoughts about any key takeaways or, or things that you want to remind us of before we exit this chapter? Sure. I think I just want to, you know, so I, I think that the, the sort of theoretical tool of cruel optimism is really useful for, again, naming the sort of day-to-day experience of neoliberalism, which is always this ongoing unfolding crisis. And the, the thing that we didn't necessarily bring up yet that I want to make sure I touch on is just sort of about Berlant's political project, which is yeah. very much about interrogating how we attach to these problematic objects and also about interrupting the sort of mundane exhaustion of everyday life. And the, the question that they pose to us towards the end of the book that I didn't talk about but I think is important, right, is how do we build attachments that aren't just reproducing the same old exhausting patterns? So we can identify the exhausting patterns through textual analysis or through, you know, sociological inquiry. So then how do we build new attachments and what are the kinds of attachments that are important and vitalizing to us? And and for folks who can, can see the cover of the book, right, it's it's a really lovely painting of that's called If Body, Riva and Zora in Middle Age. So it's a it's a, a person and their dog and Berlant in the sort of coda of the book really talks about the sort of mutual reliance that this painter and their dog have on one another and sort of thinking about this Oh, that's interesting. Mutuality of bodies in this contemporary moment and sort of like, how can we think about what attachments contribute to our flourishing as opposed to what attachments contribute to our continual wearing out? So I think that this piece that cruel optimism is about the continual wearing out of the subject 
then suggests a sort of politics of like, how do we not get worn out? And how do we, Berlant once wrote in their blog, right, we refuse to be worn out. How does the refusal to just go along with, with these practices turn into a political project? So this is a tangent brought up by your answer, but I'm curious, did Berlant or have people used their ideas to talk about human animal relationships, like interaction with pets? And just thinking about the COVID example that we've brought up a few times, just the overwhelming amount of people, every dog was adopted during COVID, right? (laughs) Like that was, that was the attachment that was formed. And I'm really curious what they would have said about that. You know, I'm not sure if anybody's talked about um, Berlant's work in terms of human animal, but I think that the idea of, you know, if we're living in this sort of the overwhelmingly present moment, pets are a form of attachment that are important to us. And and that attachment can be taken to think about how are we attached to communities? How are we, I just saw this on TikTok, somebody was talking about having a food fridge or like having bottles of water. So members of their community can just come by their porch and grab water. How are we attached to place and to each other in, in ways that can actually support one another's flourishing? as opposed to, again, just making us exhausted all of the time, I think is an interesting way. And yeah. somebody should should look at sort of animals in that way. And I mean, and this is, this is the biggest compliment to work. This is my first time being exposed to it. And there's five different papers I want people to write <laughs> using yeah. these ideas. So I, I, I did find it really inspiring in that way. I think you, I think you ended on the right note and thank you for choosing this theorist and this reading. This was a lot of fun. And so I hope the listeners agree and are also inspired to continue to engage with these ideas. Yeah, I hope so too. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciation goes to Jeffrey Gilbert for providing theme music, SUNY Brockport for providing financial support, And most importantly, on behalf of me, Kyle Green, thank you for giving theory a chance.